good evening. This is Three Valleys Radio. And tonight, it's football, bloody hell. On the show tonight, we've got Mr. Steve Rutter, Hilda Pryor, Ricky Hyatt, me, and Yelvertown striker Alex Fisher. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Football Bloody Hell. Um, our guest tonight, as I've given you already in the preview, is uh, Alex Fisher from Yeovil Town. Hi, Alex. Hello there. How are you doing? I'm OK. Um, Hilda's here. All right, Hilda? Yeah, all good. Good evening, right. guys. And Steve Rutter's here as well. Evening. Nice to see you. How are you doing all right? Good, mate. Yes, thank you. Jolly good. Okay, and I'm here, so um, basically everything's fine, really. Rick Hyatt's done a runner uh, to watch some cricket at Taunton, so um, we won't have him tonight. But, um, yeah, I think we're going to have a good show tonight. And uh, Hilda, just for a change, Hilda's going to start rabbiting on about Liverpool, no doubt, because they've actually won a trinket. They've won a trophy. How? <laughs> how, how I was just about to say how, but I'm not going to say it. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's only a Mickey Mouse thing, isn't it? I mean, what, you know, don't get too carried away, Hilda, about it. But, uh, anyway... No, t- of course not. Of course not. It, it's, good to get, it's good to get that first little piece of silverware um, in the cabinet. Um, you'll soon learn, Alex, who everybody's uh, allegiances are. As much as we all bleed green and white, there is other various uh, avenues of uh, support streams that we've got amongst us. Uh, amongst us on this podcast there is as always a liverpool united rivalry i don't know just very quickly have you spoken to josh at all about these podcasts if the uh, answer's no it's fine uh, <laughs> no i haven't so um, yeah fresh meat here he's he's something he's something of a of a, a veteran on here now josh is he comes on uh, quite regularly which is good really because we like having him on so uh, but now we've got you as well you know we're going to be we might be able to get the whole team on here one day. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Sure. I mean, of course, sorry, I should say yes. Of course, he, he has mentioned it, but we haven't gone into, into too much detail. But um, I know he's uh, uh, he's got a great personality, so I'm sure he provides quite a lot for the podcast. Yeah, he does. He's, yeah, he does. he's a good man. He does. Anyway, before, um, before, before I do go into that, though, Aid, I think the nation, no doubt about it, is absolutely buzzing from what happened at Wembley yesterday. And after 50, 55 years, 56 years, was it, since um, the nation was able to bring home a trophy in 66, the women have beaten the men in uh, bringing the Euros home. Um, Steve, I want to start with you because, obviously, I think I was reading somewhere that it was 23 years ago when they were trying to um, 
cast the film for Bendit Like Beckham, and they were really struggling to find people who, well, women in particular, who wanted to put themselves forward um, and put themselves in the limelight when it comes to football because of the, you know, the struggle that um, the w women have had when it comes to actually wanting to play sport, be accepted to be able to play football and then particularly go in at a high level. So not only was this a big win, obviously, for the nation, but it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? Just how big was this for women's football yesterday? Um, I suppose time will tell, won't it? Because it was a bit like the Americans have hosting the World Cup in 94 and everybody said this will be the turning point and then it, it didn't really kick on for another 30, 40 years. Um, but you have to say they've made massive strides because when I first went to work for the FA in 89 through to 91, I worked with Hope Powell with the England women's team. Mm -hmm. and all the players were drawn from Doncaster Bells, or nearly all the players came from a team called Doncaster Bells who were legendary in their day, people like Kaz Walker, Julie Coulthard, um, but no, no level of professional at all. They were as professional as they could be in what was a very, very amateur sport. Now you look at it, there's been massive investment. Um, I was just looking at where the, where the players play. One place in Barcelona, one's at Bayern Munich. Uh, you've got your scapping from Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City, Manchester United. You know, all, all the big clubs are investing in it now. Um, and so it's it, it, it was due some success because Hope Powell led a revolution in, in the women's game. And people have gradually built on it. And, and this is a culmination of that. And, and hopefully, you know, is a stepping stone. Will it ever be as competitive in terms of media attention and support as the men's game? I don't think it will, if I'm honest. Um, I think America's a different dynamic. It was there before men's football. But it's a product in its own right. And it's certainly moved on massively in the last 20, 30 years. Right. Definitely, most definitely. Alex, I know you've just you've, you've touched on off there, there that you don't always necessarily watch a lot of stuff outside of what you're currently involved in. But have the, have the boys got behind it? Has there been a little bit of a buzz about, obviously, um, the, the Lioness is progressing so far and then obviously going on to win it? Yeah, it was, um, like with, with most things in a, in a football changing room, if there's anything the day before of any note, it was always to be discussed the next day. And it was, yeah, it's a, um, it's a real uh, area of pride, I think. I watched it with, with the wife uh, yesterday. She's keen on her football um, and uh, is better versed in it than, um, than, than I think uh, I gave credit before some of the, the tournament kicked off, which was great. And um, I think when she was younger, she sort of saw the odd barrier to entry in terms of like, you know, there wasn't too much behind it in terms of um, infrastructure and stuff. So sort of seeing her eyes beam as much as anything was quite nice because it, it does kind of break down that barrier. It does make it feel pretty more, you know, accessible. Uh, and, you know, obviously it's it wasn't the, the, the males playing, but I still got the buzz of, oh, you know what? Well, you know, I got inspired by it as well. Um, and I think... Uh, that's ultimately what it's all about for me. You know, if it can provoke an emotion in someone um, and, that, and and it's inspiring, especially for younger generations. Obviously, I've been around playing professional football for, this be my 17th season, and I found it inspiring. You know, like it's, it's, sort of, you know, it's, it's a really good thing. And uh, I think what they've achieved is, um, is really remarkable. And the fact that it was just shy of 90,000 as well, I think that probably, like Steve touches on, it just gives you an idea of just how far it has come, particularly in the last 10 years or so. Probably in the last five is where it's really sort of rolled on. Uh, I agree with you, though, Steve. I think because 
men's football obviously came along first. That's obviously got the attention in terms of it's it's number one in the sport across all sports, isn't it? There's no no doubt about that. So I think no matter how big it is, uh, how women can how women's football can take off, it's still obviously always going to be that little bit behind the men's game, but certainly going in the right direction. I think also, if you think back 10 years to the Olympics in 2012, we had a Team GB female football team. We played at Wembley in front of a full house every game. Um, and the crowds were massive because there's a particular resonance for that event. The, the, the reason I said it, it will depend on legacy really now as to whether or not this is a seminal moment is whether or not there will be crowds of, you know, six, seven, eight, ten thousand at your average women's Super League game because it needs to become self-financing for it to move on like the Premier League, you know, washes its own face and hands out money left, right and centre. Women's football to really kick on has to become almost self-financing and they have to be able to support themselves with, like Alex said, with infrastructure, with development programmes. It can't all be coming from a national governing body all the time because if it is, then that money's being taken away from coach education programmes or it's being taken away from disability football programmes because there's a finite, you know, a finite amount of money within the FA. So that's why I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. We had the Olympics, we had some massive days, but it didn't really kick on. There was no legacy as such. Now it'll be interesting to see if this really does resonate and people get behind it and the investment flows in the way it should be. Just, just on that, Steve, are you able to give us a little bit of insight when it comes to the coaching side of things? Is the um, the coaching that happens in the female game is that uh, conducted separately to the courses that the that happen in the men's game? Is it separated at that point, or no, is that no. all done together? No, I mean. For inclusion purposes and um, in order to meet specific need, the FA will quite often run female-only or ethnic minority-only courses to, to increase the participation. But all courses are open to everybody. And if you go through um, you know, an A-licence course now, you, you're just would like to have female candidates on the A-licence course as you are males, as, as long as they all meet the prerequisites. Definitely. Um... Aid, um, did you catch any of it at all, or regardless of whether you did or you didn't, you definitely think that for the women's game in particular, it's only going to make it bigger and, and women getting a bit more behind um, football than what they maybe have done so in the past? Well, I've only really got a couple of things to say about it. Uh, uh, you know, it doesn't float by a boat, I have to say. Um, I will point out that the first goal was scored by a Man United player, so I'd just like to sort of stick that into you. Um, there it is, Alex. There it is. <laughs> but, um, you know, me personally, it doesn't float my boat at all. Um, yes, it's it's good for the, for the country to get behind it, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, Nike are preparing a huge amount of money for the young lady who took her shirt off with that great Nike sign on the front. Um, but uh, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's just a non-event, I'm afraid. I, I know I'm probably going to get all sorts of flack, but I'm sorry, it's just, just the way I feel. Just just very quickly on that, because eh? like you say, it, it, is, it is very much each to their own. But when you were involved at Yeovil, obviously the, the Yeovil ladies team, I don't think is running at the moment, is it? It did amalgamate with, was it Bridgewater? Steve? Yeah, I think it was, I think yeah, yeah. Possibly. Um, yeah, was was that sort of 
ever prominent when in your time there, or was it more more so afterwards? No, it was. It, to be fair, it was quite a while afterwards, and as I understood it, they were almost like separate entities, just operating under the same name. So not like it is now. I think today, Sheffield United are the latest team, aren't they, to announce that their women's team will now play all their home games at Bramwell Lane. So mm-hmm. you know, a lot more clubs now have taken the women's program on board, and it's part of their you know their main provision. I think the thing is, when when, when I was involved with the Oval, John Flatters used to run the. Uh, the ladies' team, and to start with, it was very, very, very low-key. But then slowly, uh, it started to move forward. And the next thing you do, we were in... Uh, I'm not sure whether it was the Super League in those days, or yeah. but, but I think we were in the second division, and we moved up to the first division, or the Premier League, or whatever it was. Um, and I think we had a season in the Premier League, um, which you could say that Yeovil were kicking above their weight at that point. And then all yeah, of a sudden, yeah. it, it it just seemed to go it seemed to go wrong and, and go downhill fast. And the next thing you know, there was no team at Yeovil. They were playing under a Bridgewater College banner of some sort, and it just sort of somehow faded away. I think it comes back to the same thing, Andy, doesn't it? It's, it's finance, it's investment. Mm. You know, Yeovil Town as a club on the men's side, which is where they generate the revenues, don't generate enough revenues to run that part of the business. And run a women's program as well, and fund it all. You know, it's got to. If they're going to run games for a women's program, it's got to bring in crowds and sponsorship and generate some revenue. Otherwise, it's all money that's detracted from the core business, which is the men's team, because that's where they generate most of their funding. Yeah. And I, just, I think it's logic that the big teams now, Man United, Arsenal, Bayern Munich, you know, they throw a million pound a year at the women's program, which is peanuts to them, but is a massive amount of money to anybody normal. Yeah. And of course, when when yeah. the Oval were, uh, were, you know, at that point in time, I mean, they even had Nathan Jones uh, from the first team who was going down to coach them on a regular basis. They did try. I mean, and you know, to be fair, John Flatters was was kind of ahead of his time, really, and with his load, you know, he was so enthusiastic about it. But I mean, when it came to the business side of it, he didn't really, um, I don't know, we didn't really get involved in it or we didn't have a clue about it. But it, I mean, obviously. As you pointed out, Yeovil couldn't afford it. I mean, they wouldn't, they weren't allowed to play on the on the Hewish Park pitch, for example, uh, only in very rare circumstances, which was sad, really, because when you look at it now, in the in the light of what happened yesterday, um, you know, Yeovil could have been sort of flag bearers to a certain extent. Yeah, hopefully, obviously, with with England winning a a, a huge tournament like this, hopefully that will start to change the minds of, you know, football clubs and funding that can possibly um be put towards it. But it was certainly a, a feel good feel good moment for the for the country yesterday. But what you were touching on at the start aid was of course that there was other action on Saturday, which was the community shield. And as you pointed out, Liverpool did win the trophy. Um, but I will concede that it is very much just that glorified season opener, isn't it? But it's always nice to be able to get to get the win. Um, first of all, boys, did you see it? It, it looked to me, watching it, because I'm a Liverpool fan, so I would have seen it a little bit differently, but City looked a little bit jaded, a little bit flat. But then having said that, I think uh, this game is being played a lot earlier than it normally would be in usual circumstances. Alex, you're very much part of... Um, you know, the pre-season at the moment for you, but you know just how gruelling it is. And it gets harder every year, doesn't it, when the it seems to get shorter and shorter the time that you've got in the off-season? 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, it's either that or it's just the age catching up with us a little bit. Um, but I prefer your explanation. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. I didn't actually manage to catch any of the game. Um, obviously, we had our own pre-season fixture. Um, but um, I know it was obviously on afterwards, but uh, I didn't get back home in time. And um, sadly, I don't have a Sky or anything at my house. So it's usually a little trip down to the local to catch any of the footy that's on BT or Sky. Um, but I've got a couple go in a couple groups with... Uh, quite a few fans of, of the teams taking part and um, actually Chloe, my, my wife's a, a City fan as well. So, um, yeah, we um, she wasn't too happy with the result. But uh, in terms of a spectacle, I, I mean, I don't know how the guys do it at the top level because they don't ever seem to really have a break. I don't know what their day-to-day is like. I'd love to, I'd be fascinated to see because the demands on the body at that level must be so extreme um, with all the... And, of course, I'm sure they got all the infrastructure to and diets and everything you can imagine to keep them, you know, fueled for a season. But, um, you know, they go from internationals to, you know, European competitions, Premier League, Cups, you know, and they don't seem to have, at least we get a sort of like a three or four week break where we know we're off. Um, at the top level, it just seems to be so demanding. So, um, yeah, it's a real, um, this time of year, I can imagine, uh, I don't know if they'd even have time to lose their fitness <laughs> or if they just keep sort of ticking over. But, um I'd imagine if you win that fixture, it's always quite a nice confidence booster going into the season because you already feel like maybe there's a, a little monkey off the back if you've already pocketed a bit of silverware. So um, bragging rights goes a little bit. Well, that's very much the player's perspective. So with Steve here, I imagine the manager's perspective would be exactly the same, is it? You uh, you lose the game and it's a, it's, a, it's a friendly, it doesn't matter. But if you win it, it's, uh, it's a trophy in the cabinet, isn't it? Yeah, it's all about the psychology, isn't it? Alex has just said it. You know, it, it gives you a real boost going into the um, into the season. You know, we were talking earlier after the Liverpool Man United friendly, and AD was getting quite carried away and saying, "Well, I know it's early, but but the Charity Shield or Community Shield is actually a competitive fixture. Um, it was it's probably the best one I've seen for a while, to be fair, in terms of the intensity and the quality um, and the entertainment value. And I, I think you know Klopp will be quietly smiling, and and I think. Um, Guardiola will just be looking and he think they do need a little bit more time. The question is, of course, if you have a slow start in the Premier League now, the other teams, if it's Liverpool or Man City, they don't tend to drop too many points, do they? Across the course of the season. So, um, if they get off to a slow start, they'll, they'll find it difficult to catch them. Did think, you um, watch the grenade? I watched uh, uh, the second half, well, not even the second half of the second half I watched. I mean, I, I managed to drag myself in front of the tail. It was difficult. I have to say it was difficult having to sit there and watch the two teams I hate the most. But I did it. And, uh, you know, um, Alex, in, in China, um, when they have people over there that, that don't sort of follow the party line, they they send them away to be re-educated. And I'm just wondering whether your wife needs to be sent away and re-educated <laughs> about the moment. I was, you know? I was a little sensitive to the fact there was diehard by United fan on here. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, she's from there. She's from there. The family are all, all citizens. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so well, you better, you better send the whole family across to China. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think you might have to listen to them. <laughs> but, but going back to the game, initially, you know, when I switched over, I thought the first sort of five or ten minutes I watched, and it looked as though City were building up ahead of steam, and they 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 duly did, and they scored to to get back in the game a bit. And and at that point, I was sitting there thinking, mm, City look a bit useful again, and you know, how's that going to be? But then, when Liverpool did push forward, 
again, they looked extremely potent, and I thought this new guy, um, what's his name, Darwin, Barwin, whatever, um, yeah, Darwin yes. took took the goal very well. looked looked a real handful, I thought. Whereas on the other side of the coin, Harland, uh, you know, he hardly got a kick from the bit that I watched. Now I do hasten to add, I only watched a sort of you know quarter of an hour, twenty minute spell. So I might have missed him having some some good touches and some good moments, but of the two, certainly the um, Darwin looked the better of the two players. I thought, and that bodes sort of you know badly for us uh, down the road because um, you know I don't want to see Liverpool going well. Just on the the actual gameplay itself, Steve, did you did you watch the whole match? Not all of it. I was in and out, but I just kept picking up bits. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to reference the Manchester City goal because we had a few people over as we were watching it, so the commentary was on relatively quiet. So um, I, we only really sort of were going by the replays of it. But if you boys, I don't know if you boys saw that incident because they were looking for an offside, which granted he was he was onside, but I thought the issue wasn't about the offside. I thought the goalkeeper had it in two hands, and is that rule? changed or or have I got that wrong and the goalkeeper was never actually in control of it I was a bit confused as to what they were actually looking for and why that took so long probably because it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's VAR and they take an inordinate amount of times over solving the simplest of problems I mean it amazes me um but no I don't I know I've known wiser than you are mate as to what they were looking for Oh, so um, I think they are um, just sort of as a sweeping statement. Alex, are you are you for VAR or are you quite happy that you're playing in a division where you don't have to worry about it? I I'm quite happy that we don't have to have it. If I'm honest, um, I think when I watch it, it's tricky. It always feels like football's become business at the top level, so therefore it needs a definite yes or no. Um, and yeah, it could make the difference between a point or two that could determine who wins the Premier League and, you know, huge things at stake. But, you know, over the course of the season, things you could argue average out. You, you know, you win some, you lose some. I've scored some goals that definitely weren't offside. I've looked back at ones and I go, God, I was about a foot off. How's he, how's he not seen it? You know, um, so um, I kind of like the game to flow. Having said that, like... It must be amazing being on a precarious 1-0 lead away from home and someone scores a goal and it only gets chalked off. And the psychological advantage would be like you scored a second, almost, you know, and the, the hit psychologically for the opposition that haven't got that extra goal or, to, you know, haven't equalised or won the game is also a factor. But um, I like goal line technology. I think that's fair. I, I think that's fair. It doesn't really disrupt it if it can go straight to a watch, you know, as in like the referee's watch or something. But... Yeah. Um, I uh, I guess being a forward, I'd always say I'd like any ruling to be in favour of the attacking side because you want to see a spectacle where goals are scored and it's and it's a bit it's exciting. Um, so um, I think it kind of when when someone's got like a a shoulder next to a toe and you're literally talking millimeters, it's not a fa it's not an advantage for me. But if the rules are what they say and, and that's what they they say, that's that's an unfair advantage, then then so be it. I think it's always going to be an area of uh, contention and, and pretty grey. I think there's no doubt about it that as the season goes on, we're going to get more and more 
uh, decisions that um, it's amazing, isn't it? Because they said that VAR would actually stop the debate. But if anything, it's sort of heightened it, really, and certainly given us a lot to talk about on the podcast. Um, just in terms of the the teams obviously played on Saturday, um, AD, I'll come to you first, because I know it's a question you probably won't want to answer, so I'll, I'll ask it to you. But based on what you've seen, would you still expect Liverpool and City to sort of be, regardless of whether it's, you know, close in points or not, would, would you still expect them to to be the, the ones to beat? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think a lot depends uh, from the City point of view. I mean, both managers have, have drastically changed their teams, really. And, and you know, I mean, City in particular have sort of got rid of quite a few players. Um, presumably, Jack Grealish will, will come on a little bit. Um, whether Haaland is going to be as good as everybody thinks he is, I can't really... I don't know is the answer. I mean, based on what we saw on Saturday... He didn't look quite as, as superhuman as he's kind of been made out to be. Um, and as I said, Liverpool, uh, Darwin certainly did look superhuman. I thought he looked very good. So on the basis of that, I, I think you'd have to say that they're going to be the two to the two to beat. And I, I think if you can if you can finish above them, the chances are you'll finish. The, you know, you'll you'll win the uh, the Premier League. So, yeah. Would you uh, Would you agree with that, Steve? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think Liverpool have really replaced like very similar with like. So you've lost Mane, who's very mobile, very you know very athletic, and got Darwin Nunes in. Um, you know all their front players they seem to get of a similar sort of mould. I think the difference with City is they've changed their their profile massively by going from playing with a false nine or two false nines at times to playing with an out and out striker who wants to run off the shoulder, get in the penalty box, and it's going to take them more time to adjust than it's going to take. Um, Darwin Nunes to adjust at Liverpool, I would think. But I, yeah, I would agree with Adi. I think those two are the best teams. Um, Arsenal seem to be making some strides in the right direction. Tottenham might be interesting. I think Chelsea and Man U might find it a bit too much this season. So I'd, I'd probably go for Liverpool and Man City top two, Arsenal and um, Tottenham next, and then Chelsea and Man U after them. Do you agree with um, what the boys have said, Alex? That's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah, I mean, over the last couple of years, both City and Liverpool kind of monopolised that top two spot. And I've noticed the games that I've been managed, I've managed to catch and I've not been playing myself, uh, you know, they they will play other Premier League teams how we would play Premier League teams. So you've got Premier League level players basically going, can you break us down for 90 minutes? Um, so every game they come up against basically like a 5-5 or 5-4-1 or something of the ilk. Um, and they always seem to manage to find a way. Um, and, I, you know, it's it must be quite daunting for any player going, well, both teams' bench could also probably win the league as well. Um, so the depth that they have is what I think makes a, is a big differentiator for them. Um, but I think they'll be certainly up there, yeah. I've not really kept an eye too much on transfers uh, of the other sides in the top six to see who would be competitive to hit that top four. But... Um, yeah, I think those two will certainly be right up there. I think Arsenal were looking at, um, as Steve mentioned them, uh, I mean, Chelsea are still buying, but Arsenal, I mean, they bought Jesus and they certainly look to be, you know, to beat Seville 6-0. I know, again, it's only a friendly and therefore, you know, maybe they weren't trying that hard. Pardon? 
I think Jesus got a hat-trick, didn't he? I think he's been yeah. on fire in um, yeah. pre-season so far. He had, so if he keeps that going, um, you know, you don't, you, you make, makes you wonder, really. I mean, they certainly seem to be playing extremely well. Chelsea, on the other well, hand, that... are in a bit of a mess, I think, because you know, they bought Sterling, OK, they've got him in, in the bag now, but... Uh, uh, and this other guy, Kubri, Kubernitzer, or whatever his name is. Kulabali. Uh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> realise he's fantastic with foreign names. Yeah, like, I yeah, am, mate. Yeah. yeah. Remember Jack Charlton? He could never remember anybody's name, could he? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is Three Valleys Radio, after all. You have to make allowances, and we, we do regularly, I'm afraid. But, um, yeah, so um, I think Arsenal could. But, you know, I've got a lot of faith in my team, and I think that... Uh, Ten Hag certainly seems to have the right idea. He seems to be installing some discipline and uh, they seem to be playing as a team. Um, OK, they lost to Atletico Madrid, but I mean, they, it was right at the end to go at the goal. I guess they were, by that point, getting a bit tired. But I was quite excited by the game against... Uh, come on, Steve, pronounce it for me. Rayo... What are they called? Rayo Vaticano. Yeah. Rayo Vaticano. I thought, uh, you know, we've got three really classy individuals in this. Oh, Iqbal, um, Garnacho, and um, Charlie Savage. So, you know, they're they're looking, you know, especially um, Garnacho. He looks as though he's going to get into the first team quite quickly. I would have thought if he plays like that every week. So I've got a bit of faith in my team, and I think we're going to definitely get in the top four. So we'll see. We will see. Not the, it's not the best measure, though, Ed, is it really? Because they, I mean, they got promoted, didn't they, from um, second division in Spain, mm. and it's a very small provincial Madrid club, and they'll they'll do well to stay up or get out, you know, get out of the bottom six. So to draw with them one all, it's not exactly, you know. No, but it wasn't the full. It wasn't the full first team out, was it? So I mean, you've got to look at it from that point of view as well. Yeah, no, that's what that's what I mean. That's the level of competition, and that's the level of that's the level of side he's put out. But I, I mean, I think you're. Living in more in hope than expectation. I think your highlight of the season could have been beating Liverpool four 0 in preseason. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see. But I, you know, uh, it did happen, Hilda. Four 0 mate. Four yeah. 0 You got it stuffed right up, you son. Uh, we did, and, uh, and now I'm sat here with the first trophy of the season. All so, right, uh, <laughs> yeah. you smug old. Uh, I, I'm not going to say anymore. I got the ump now. <laughs> well, talking of names that you certainly can pronounce, um, I'm pretty sure that you can pronounce the name Alex Fisher because a certain Alex Fisher managed to get on the score sheet this weekend from a, from a penalty spot with a nice little 1-0 win up at Weston. Um, Alex, how, how have you, firstly, how have you found it being back at Yeovil Town? Yeah, I'd, uh, of all the uh, times I've signed at a club, this has been the easiest transition in. Um, obviously, have a huge sense of familiarity from the last time that I was here, which was it was a nice, which was a big help. Um, and I know people chuck out this kind of cliches when they sign someone, but genuinely, it's been a really warm reception, and it does really make a difference. Um, you know, you feel just like that little bit less pressure to, you know, have to you obviously want to deliver from the off, but it just takes that little bit of an edge off, which, you know, is, is, is a lot. I just think obviously, uh, Steve, you mentioned it earlier, the, um, you know, we're all human beings. We all, we all have emotions and psychology plays a huge part in, in performing. Um, and, you know, so it's been, it's been a nice, 
easy transition. The gaff has been great. You've got a really good set of guys there that want to work hard and do well. Um, and um, yeah, it was nice uh, to, to sort of score uh, on, the, on the weekend. Um, I haven't taken penalties for a while, so I kind of want to stamp some authority on that early doors if I can. Um, and um, yeah, I, funny enough, I started pre-season at Cheltenham Town just to keep training, just to keep ticking over. Uh, and the keeper in goal was from Cheltenham Town on loan, who I'd taken penalties against uh, for about two weeks at the beginning of pre-season. So I was like, of all the keepers to come across in pre-season, <laughs> it was someone who was very well first to an Alex Fisher penalty. <laughs> um, so, uh, no surprises, he went the right way, but luckily enough, it was far enough in the side netting. So did, we did. had a little bit of a debate. Sorry, Ed, I just wanted to very quickly just say we had a little bit of a debate on here. It might have been last week, week before, about what your role possibly might be in the team um, this season. Um, I think it's okay for you to listen back. I don't think any of us slated you too much, so I think it's safe. But <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to say, obviously, you're coming back now as one of the more experienced heads in the team. What well, do you see yourself? sort of in the sort of and this you hopefully you appreciate this comparison but possibly there's your room old where you're <laughs> bringing the others into play obviously you've got the likes of malachi linton you've got ollie holbert that possibly you're going to be sort of trying to read your flick on and you be that focal point or have you got a target in mind to try and get however many goals obviously you possibly can or hopefully a little bit of both well, firstly, I think Jura is one of the most underrated centre forwards that I've seen. So, any comparison there, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll bite your hand off. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. it's <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'll pass you that 20 quid afterwards. Yeah. Um, they, um, yeah, it's very much uh, to. Personally, I, I, I don't necessarily hold um, targets per se. I. Ultimately, I just want to see the club succeed uh, and the you do that as a team. Um, obviously, I want to be scoring as many goals to help them along the way or provide as many assists as I can. Uh, I think one of the main roles for me this season will be to be that individual where I can be, um, both on and off the field. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's strange sort of looking back on a career when you get a little bit older and your perspective does change, your attitude, uh, well, my attitude doesn't change in terms of you know, how I approach the game, but how I approach scenarios in a match might change and um, recognising certain situations where we might need to alleviate some pressure or, you know, win a foul, things like that, that I was maybe a bit naive to when I was younger and sort of trying to bring that into both, all three of us up top if we play sort of like a, a, a two and a one. Um, but yeah, the guys that we've got here are young, they're raw, they've got all the ability in the world. Um, and if I can provide some... Um, experience that they could maybe learn from then then that would be great but um if i can also provide maybe or take away our, uh some of the heat from the back four that we'll be playing against to allow them to have a bit more freedom um then yeah i, I sort of relish that as well did um you have any um dealings with with chris hargreaves in the past or is this the first time you've you've sort of been he's been in contact with you in one shape or form uh, no, actually, one of my my first season as a as a pro was Oxford United when he had his first spell at the club in two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. So it's my first uh, year 
in the first team environment, just coming in through the youth team. Really, I was I was a, I was a youth teamer, but I was, I was playing in the first team, and uh, so I was very. He was a club captain as well, so I was, I'd, I've known of Chris for for a for a long time. Um, and then when I was at uh, Exeter, I often saw him at the training ground taking some coaching. I know he was at Bristol Rovers sometimes there with the with the youth setup there. So I'd cross past him quite a few times, and I've been a, a really big fan of his um, for quite some time. Um, so it was another sense of familiarity when you know I got the call through um I I'd help, sort of had the odd message in the off season from me to him as well so um it wasn't anything that was kind of out of the blue and something that was kind of grew organically as the weeks passed it's an interesting one isn't it because you've obviously come back to your former club and in many ways Chris Hargreaves is going to start against his former club in the terms of his BT punditry team and Yeovil being on the TV in the first game of the season does that add an extra little incentive for you boys being on the TV? Do you look out for those things? Well, obviously, the BT Sport um, right being with uh, the National League and have been for a few seasons, or is it very much just sort of business as usual and you don't really take much notice of that sort of thing? I think players tend to recognise these games as shop window games. They don't come around very often. Um, and that in itself is uh, quite a, a motivator. So you'd go into this match. Obviously, it's the, firstly it's the first game of the season. Like everyone, say, not the first game of the season. <laughs> you know, like it's, you don't. You, you should. I mean, you should never need motivation to, to be playing football. But it's like an added extra because you know they're the sort of games. If you create some memories, you score some, have a good game, you score a goal, get out of the match, make a great save, whatever it might be, and you're on the right end of the scoreline. Um, you know, they're they're memories for life that have been seen by your family at home and you, you get another perspective of it, you'll watch it back. Um you know, I, I I'm all for it. I think it's great that BT cover the National League because it does provide, you know, a, a platform that you didn't you didn't get it even at you know at League Two, League One. Definitely. I think um Aid, when your time at Yeovil, um they didn't necessarily have cameras there all the time because the football league didn't have the same sort of rights. There's obviously BT have with the National League. No, that's right. I mean, when TV came, it was always a big occasion because, uh, you know, almost a week before the, the, the rigours would roll up and, you know, kind of everybody at the club knew that it was going to be on the TV because there was all these TV pods wandering around, putting up scaffolding, getting up on the roof, putting the cameras in and all the rest of it. So, no, it was a, it was a big deal in those days for certain. I mean, uh, obviously, when we had the two Man United games, well, you'd expect cameras to be there, but... But, you know, a lot of the games that they came to, that, that you know, I remember one, we played Huddersfield once early in the season at home on telly and we won 3-0, I think, at the time. One, one of, um, you know, BT, well, it wasn't necessarily BT in those days, it was Sky more than anything else, I think. But when they used to come, it certainly gave everybody a lift. There's no question of that. And um, whether it does so much now, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm not putting anything down on BT. I mean, they, they do good coverage, fair enough. But I, I don't know. It, doesn't, it just doesn't seem quite so important somehow now because it's National League and it's kind of, you know, National League's National League, isn't it? And we, we want to get out of the National League. We feel as a club we're a, a, a football league club and we should be there and we need to get back there, you know, so... That's just, just something I was going to... It was gonna... a little bit strange in terms of the Football League obviously have their highlights and Sky Sports in particular do show a lot of the championship games and the odd sort of game from League One and Two. But I think Yeovil have probably had more coverage since being in the National League because they get on BT Sport probably about four or five times a season. 
yeah, that might well be true. But uh, I mean, I'll tell you something else about Yeovil. Um, my my youngest son used to he worked for about six or seven years for the non-league paper up at London, and um, when Yeovil got uh, promoted to the football league, I mean they were absolutely suicidal down there because they they sold so many papers in the Yeovil area um, of the non-league paper. It was it was phenomenal. So, I mean, from their point of view, they hated it when we were in the Football League. So, no doubt they're quite happy that we'd added the National League now. But, I don't know. But, Steve, I was going to ask you a question. <clears throat> I mean, we know that... Uh, excuse me. We know that money is always an issue um, for any football club at this level, and, and Yeovil are no different. But I, I notice that they've, um, they've employed, obviously, a new manager. They've got a new assistant manager. They've got Marcus Stewart to help with the strikers, uh, presumably the strikers, and now they've got a goalkeeping coach as well. Um, you know, it all costs money. Do you, are you surprised that they've gone to that level? And and does it? Do you think that you know? Does history prove that having a specialist um, coach for a specialist group of players works? Um, it's, it's certainly. I'm not sure history proves it works, but it's it's certainly something that people are going more towards very much like the American sports in it where they the NFL they have a kicking coach and they have a defensive linesman coach and and football's done that now it's recognized there's individual roles in a team so goalkeeping coaches are pretty standard um, and specialist coaches now are pretty standard in a lot of clubs and I've, I think the skill of the manager is he's given a budget for staff and he's given a budget for players and I know managers that would sacrifice maybe a player if he can get a member of staff in that he thinks is then going to proportionately affect the rest of the players or a group of the other players and get more of a return out of them. So it is really a case of he's probably working off the same budget. He's just chosen to utilise it in a slightly different way. Just going back quickly to um, the TV experiences, Alex, I'm pretty sure you've got a bit of a famous one when it comes to the Oval Town, haven't you? Because wasn't that when you made your debut and you came all the way down from Motherwell? Did, did BBC sort of tweak that story a little bit to make it sound as good as it did or did you make that 12 hour journey down on the same day and make your debut against United no it was pretty it was pretty accurate actually um I didn't have a clue any of that had taken place until so I my, my family uh, my parents are like in between sort of Oxford and Swindon um and uh, they couldn't get down to the game so I started the morning in I lived in Hamilton next to Motherwell um, started the morning there, got down for the game, not quite at 6.30. I was in at about 4, ready for pre-match. Um, That's some effort still, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, I, I knew I was probably going to make... The, the deal was kind of going to be... The, what, was the game on a... Was it a Friday night? Uh, so there was two, wasn't yeah, it? Think... So did you, was it a 4 nil? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think it was a Friday night, thinking about it. I think yeah, it was. I was um, the the first concert I heard I heard about Yeovil being interested on the Wednesday night, and at Motherwell we played Ross County, and I was left out of the squad for that reason. Um, and then on the Thursday, I just thought, you know what, I wasn't playing as much. I was having coming off the bench quite a lot for Motherwell. I was often playing out of position, um, which I didn't mind, but I was then getting a bit of stick for maybe not having the best return in front of goal when I wasn't really playing up top for some of these games um, and um, I thought like, I was being promised in game time 
or at least the opportunity to, you know, provide, you know, you can't promise game time to a player that doesn't deliver, obviously. But, you, you know, I thought I'd get a fair crack at the whip. And um, it was quite, a, yeah, then, so on the Thursday afternoon, I'd signed all the paperwork, but I didn't think it was going to go through in time. Um, so they said, well, you know, we'll see you Monday unless it all goes through, but we'll let you know Friday morning. So, yeah, came down Friday morning and then straight after the game, went back to Oxford, uh, got caught in traffic on the 303 from an accident. So didn't get to Oxford till about one in the morning. Um, hadn't really checked my phone, if I'm honest. And then I suddenly saw all this stuff. Uh, and that was, and I saw, yeah, they, it was kind of a match of the day, done a little piece on it. And um, BBC had done a little piece on it. I suppose it's one of those sort of classic FA, well, maybe not classic, but an FA Cup story. We can uh, say it's a classic. I remembered it. Okay, well, in that case, yeah, but it's, um, but yeah, and I was, I was really blown away by it because I was like, oh, just for me, it was just, it was, you know, signing a deal. Yes, I mean, goodness, it's Man United, you know, what, what experience, but um, you know, it did was, that, it was getting down to that game. And, um, sorry, mate, did that, did that game being on the Friday night and obviously being against Man United help kind of push it through quicker than maybe it would have done? Because you know, about, about it, you would have wanted to have been involved in that game and sure. rightly so. I um I was always going to do the move, um, but yeah, when they said, look, if you get this, if you make the decision now and don't think about it over the weekend, um, I was like, well, what, why, what have I got to think about? You know, it's, I'd also been away from sort of like I mean I wouldn't necessarily call where, where I'm living at the moment, just out sort of uh, outside of Bristol, as is like home home, but um, it's where my my then girlfriend was. She's my wife now, but <laughs> um, back then my missus was... was a yeah, 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 they're all good, yeah. It sounded like it was a, a bad experience. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, and we hadn't lived... We hadn't been near each other for, like, three or four years at this point, so it was an opportunity as well to be, you know, bring that side of my life together as well. So I was always going to do it, but, yeah, a game like that was... Um, and it was also, you know, I've, I, I've known people that have played for Yeovil over the years, um, and I know the history of the club. I liked everything about it and I've played a couple of games there in the past and always thought it was a tough place to go so I quite like the idea of being on the other side of the fence where you're the hard place to go to um, you know there's lots of positives about it that uh, made it quite an easy transition but yeah talk about sort of cherry on top and United at home in the cup if I if I can ask as well about the the nature of the move in terms of um, hopefully it doesn't is not too awkward a question to, to answer, but certainly from the outside looking in, some people might be surprised that Scottish Premier League down to League Two at the time. Obviously, I know there's a lot of, you know, some people might have quite a derogatory view of, of Scottish football generally, but do you think when you take Rangers and Celtic out of the equation, maybe there isn't a lot between League One, League Two to, say, mid-table of the Scottish Premier League? downwards is that it's, a fair assessment it's, it's a really tricky question you know um and i think it does depend on who you speak to i and i agree there's like a stigma attached to scottish football that it's why would you go up there when you can play down here kind of vibe um i would say if you yeah taking the two big teams out of it the old firm teams um they obviously add a huge area of i mean that i mean you play in front of 50,000 60,000 people they're they're like you might never get that playing in, in sort of the lower leagues in England. So they are real marquee games. Um, but I'd say the standard is better than people give credit for. Um, but it's different. It was different. I often found that I actually had more time on the ball in Scottish games, but I was also punished. Our teams were punished a lot better or more, more often for making mistakes. Um, don't get me wrong. There were some games you played in 
you know, that I've been I've been a part of where <coughs> I'm sure there's very little between that and the National League game. But uh, the very same team the next week will go and play, say, uh, you know, a St Johnston, you know, like a sort of mid-table, not a top five considered side. Um, and you would see some really good football on display, very good passing movements, good good patterns, clinical finishing. Um, I think it just, you'll find that the odd highlight of someone missing an easy chance or having a bad pass off the pitch or something like that will just go viral more than the your average bit of you know play that you get in a game. So it kind of follows that tag. But to place it is really hard because you have mm-hmm. teams, I think, that are borderline Premier League standards certainly top of the championship, you know, all I would, would, would certainly compete in those levels and teams that, you know, could they get out of the National League? It might be tricky, <laughs> you know, so all in all in the space of 12 teams. So um, it's certainly a, a really hard one to answer, but I'd say on average, it was definitely, I'd certainly think it's, it, it's better than I think people give credit yeah, for. I, I do apologise for asking you that question. I was just quite intrigued. But I was intrigued. No, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. And I, I like talking about it because I'm a big advocate for Scottish football. Um, you know, it provide, I had experiences up there. I, I wouldn't have got anywhere else. Um, and play, um, play on the other way as well, because I think um, Bevis Mugabe is doing really well at Motherwell, isn't he? I think he's really flourished. Correct. Yeah, it's, um, and he's uh, what a great guy he is, by the way, as well. Um you know, so all the success he gets in the game is is thoroughly deserved because he's a true professional, um, someone that would always do it right, eat right, live right, um, which is nice to see that rewarded um, yeah. with, with contracts. But yeah, I I say um, uh, what I often say to guys in the changing rooms that ask is that if you're coming from a Premier League club, from you know you've been at say Arsenal as a kid and you had a couple games in the Prem and then you kind of filtered down the system at 22, you're playing sort of League Two then Scottish football probably doesn't tick the box because you've experienced a a club like an Arsenal. Whereas if you've kind of gone the other way like I did, I sort of came through the non-league system. Uh, Oxford United were in, just just dropped out of the league when I got into the first team. I then went abroad for a few years, then came back and played league football about 23, 24 uh, in England. And, um, you know, I wasn't exposed to those environments, those infrastructures, those training grounds, you know, things like that. So to play in fixtures that, you know, you are the top level, you are marketed as Premier League, you are in the papers like you are down here, on the, you know, in the Sun, Mail and whatever else. You know, it's regarded in the same esteem up there, so you, your profile is significantly higher, or it certainly feels it. So you feel like you're kind of being put on a, I wouldn't say a pedestal, but you certainly feel like you're performing at a level that's maybe higher than the standard might suggest it is when you compare it to the English leagues. Have, um, Steve, have you ever been involved in Scottish football, done any scouting in that area or, or sort of done much north of the border at all, if anything? Um, no, not, not masses, to be fair. I went up there with um, Richard Huxford, who used to play at Kettering, became a sports and exercise science coach up there. I was working at one of the clubs and I went and did an assessment with him. And I went and did one with Graham Ricks once when he was at Hearts. Um, but, very, but very limited, but I agree with what Alex is saying there. But what, what it does do is, is it gives you quite close to home an opportunity to go and play for a club, say a Livingston or somewhere like St Johnston or somebody, who are playing at the top level of the domestic football, maybe have a chance of winning something. And you, as a consequence, you can get into Europe through that route, where if you stayed in England, the equivalent level you would play at, you would probably be like, as Alex was saying, top end of Division 1, bottom end of the Championship, something like that. Um, 
and, and you know, it's the same when I went to Greece. I, I went to Greece and, and went to Panathinaikos because it was a club that, in their own domestic league, are top four. You got a chance of progressing and winning the cup or getting into Europe. But they wouldn't survive in the Premier League in England. They would, you know, they'd probably middle of the Championship. Um, so I think it's the same sort of thing. And, and there are some really good players in Scotland. And historically, the English clubs used to raid Scotland and Ireland, didn't they, for talent? Um, since it became a global game, obviously we don't do it as much. But if you look back at the good Leeds sides, the old Man United sides, Liverpool, Tottenham, they all had a real good sprinkling of Scots lads in there. Can I ask something a minute? Um... Uh, Alex, have you seen the film Braveheart? <laughs> you know what? I haven't. Um, oh, that's, I was, that's a pity. I know what it's about. Um, and I never got around to watching it when I was up there as much as I was told pretty much every week by the groundsman, have you watched it yet? <laughs> but, well, what, I, what I was going to ask was, I mean, you know, you've, you've obviously played at, at uh, Celtic Park, have you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are they... There was a scene in, in Braveheart where they're all lined up to go and have a battle. I think I don't know where it was now. Is but, this the um, famous scene? Pardon? Is this the famous end scene? No, 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 film? no, not that. No, it wasn't that. But they were just like complete idiots, these, these Scots people, and they were lifting up their kilts and all this sort of business. And I, I just wondered, having played at Celtic Park, whether they are, you know, totally as mad as they make them out to be. And, and uh, Ibrox, I presume. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I, I had a, I really liked them up there. They, they were football, they were football mad. Never really saw the crazy sides of them, um, but they every time, certainly at the the old firm games, really well supported. Celtic Park, they have like the safe standing section in the corner where they're, oh, okay, I guess you watch you first. Ultras, I guess is the term, um, where like the more diehard fans are, and um, you know, my, like it's it's a real intimidating atmosphere um for sure and we you know for the clubs i played in Venice and motherwell there they um they're not sellouts those games you know there's yes it holds 60 odd but they'll be sort of like high 40s low 50s but when you see the european nights there and it's rammed and it's rocking and it's not a spare seat in the house um at night you know that's i mean that's pretty hard to recreate anywhere that's really unique to those clubs um and um, you know, you feel like you're you're very well. Certainly, I was very aware that I was playing at, at grounds that have huge amounts of history in them. Uh, from the tra the way the changing rooms are set up to just the aura of the place when you walk out to the you know you almost blocking that out. It took a couple. It took once being there. I'd say at least once at each to block that out. So the next time I was like, right, I'm here for a job, not to take this in. The first ten minutes of the first couple of times I was there, I was like, "Oh wow, isn't this cool?" And I was like, "You know, actually, you know, you, I think most people are drawn into that a little bit if you if you've not been exposed to it." Um, and then, yeah, the more you kind of within a game, well, within a few minutes, you're like, "Right, no, no, we're here, we're here for a job," and everything else just became on the periphery. But, was um, was it in any way intimidating? Um, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, I actually find it harder to play at grounds where they're tighter to the to the um, to the pitch like i'll find i i find sort of playing at uh you know sort of lower league grounds just as hard as playing up there because you you know like you, you don't really interact with the fans as much as you in big stadiums They're a little bit set back i think hearts time castle was the hardest place to go to because it was it's steep it's packed and it, they're right up against the side you've you slide off the pitch you slide into the first row 
Um, and there's some grounds that I've played at sort of in the league and, and sort of non-league where obviously you don't really compare the, the loudness of the atmosphere. But in terms of the intimidation, you know, it's especially if you're maybe not in a good place during a game, it's, you know, or if you are, it's great to sort of stick one in a little bit. And I was start just going to say, Ali, I guess it, it, works, it works both ways. I guess it's a bit different if the if the atmosphere isn't great, but then if you're having a stinker and then you can hear exactly what people were saying about you in the front row. Yeah, I mean, there's no hiding place. Um, I had quite long hair for a couple of seasons and um, yeah, it was like, I knew I kind of put a target on my back, but I kind of enjoyed it, I have to say. So I, thrive's a strong word, but I, I really enjoy those environments where like, the most satisfying games are when you're playing and you, well, certainly a, a game away from home when you're winning and you know the crowd's a bit rolled up and then you start, you know, you win a foul, you know, you, you, you take it to the corner, the last couple of minutes, that kind of thing. And I don't know, I find that sometimes as satisfying as anything. And you get, yeah, to sort of, to get that at a big ground is, you know, that's quite a, quite an experience in itself um but no the spectacle of scottish football at the bigger grounds is, is a fantastic experience Hilda, i hope the bbc aren't uh, listening on this because you know i can just see it now shock horror bbc sports correspondent seen eating tea on radio <laughs> <laughs> i was trying to very slyly um have my tea but i was gonna wait and have it later but it was a lovely lasagna that they uh lady downstairs has made me so uh, i probably shouldn't call her the lady downstairs like it, it, it sounded too, delicious it was too good to be able to um wait so um i managed to polish it off so um i think i got away with it well i, I i'm sorry i've got to say i'm i'm shocked i really am shocked that three valleys radio are setting a trend here and i'm not sure it's a good trend to set but there we go well, to well see. I don't think they really realise until you pointed it out. So thanks for that. No, that's all right. Any time at all, you know. If I can, if I can humiliate you on air, why not? Everybody humiliates me on air, so yeah, 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 you know. But anyway, having said all that, um, my clock is telling me that we're up to fifty-eight minutes, which means that we have come to the end of the show. Near as damn it. So, um, Alex, thanks ever so much for coming on and helping us out today. We love it. We'll have you on again if you're up for it. Yeah, 100%. Real pleasure. Um, sorry for uh, speaking over everyone. For <laughs> no, don't worry. Don't worry. Um, yeah. Thanks, Steve, as usual. Are you um, are you available next week or not? Um, not unless you've got a link in Thailand. Right, OK. I knew it was imminent that you were going soon. I just wasn't quite sure when you were going. Yeah, I'm waiting wait till the 1st of September. Right, OK. Hilda is around, I expect, aren't you? Yeah, I'll be here, mate. There you go, listeners. At least you've got two of us here anyway. So um, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Don't forget, full match commentary, Scunthorpe United versus Town on Saturday at, uh, I'm not sure what kickoff is, it five o'clock, is it? or 20 past five, I believe. 20 past five, right. there you go, 20 past five. So please do join us again then. George Marshall James and Cy Thire will be up at Glanford Park. And um, we hope we'll be able to give you a good winning commentary with three points for Yobel Town. So until then, thank you very much for listening and we'll speak to you again soon next week. <laughs>